Welcome to the Pixel Drone Show. This is episode 14. And today we are joined by John Egrenes, who is the CEO of Aloft. You may have heard of Aloft in the past. Their name was Kitty Hawk. They recently changed it. And uh, and now we're going to talk to him today about a whole lot of different things uh, in relationship to being a lens provider, to providing services for drones in general in the airspace. Uh, John is the founder and the CEO of Aloft. Um, he is a leading provider of the unmanned software and airspace systems and also our favorite lens provider at least at Pilot Institute they're the one that we uh, recommend all the time uh, John is a Part 107 certified commercial drone pilot he's also a founding member of the FAA UAS safety team we'll talk about a little bit about that uh, he's a self-taught uh, iOS developer he writes about drone topics on a lot of different forums you may have seen him on TechCrunch on Forbes and then we can hear him speak regularly at different industry events so uh, John welcome to the show Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Greg, Karen. Hi, cool to, cool to be here and congrats on the new show. Thank you. Thanks. So Thank you. before we talk about Loft, I wanted to bring up this FA UAS safety team. Tell us a little bit more about what that is and kind of, uh, you know, what, what does the FA UAS safety team does? And then you were one of the founding member. Yeah, it, it started, I want to say five ish years ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as is the is in the name, um, you know, really thinking, okay, how do we emphasize safety really across government and industry stakeholders? And it's kind of gone through some some ebbs and flows. And I think uh, you know we have some new leadership with uh, uh, Pete Dumont, who's now leading it. Um, I recently joined the steering committee, focused on the data working group. And yeah, I think where we're trying to move it forward is. Um, really to a place where it's a lot more actionable. And, and I think in the past, for example, um, just focusing on the data working group, the I think the approach was very traditional aviation, like, oh, let's look at some flight data and telemetry and do some analysis. And uh, one, that, that data is you know somewhat hard to, to come by, but also two, okay, if we find some, some learnings from that, is anything really gonna happen? You know, DJI probably has all that data already. Who are, are we really trying to inform? So uh, a lot of the approach that, that I'm trying to take is what's more actionable um, kinds of data that's less, hey, let's assess the lifespan of propellers and more so where are we lacking in, in education and in awareness, um, something that uh, we can really address to different segments where we have recreational pilots, what do they need to understand better where can we help out there um, just kind of simple kinds of data points like we see this in in before you fly and and on a loft where the weekends are the busiest times to fly so you know let's not focus our efforts around tuesday kind of communications for example um, so i think there's a lot of ways to go about it um, but I th i'm pretty excited for where it's going you might have seen the recent uh, dac uh, meeting last week where um, Pete presented on behalf of the UAST. And uh, I think that's just another way that we're trying to bring a lot of these efforts together to um, look at, as I mentioned, recreational, but commercial, um, drone delivery, advanced air mobility. There's just a lot of places where I think the group can be more actionable. Um, so I'm excited to be a part of the steering committee now and, and, uh, help to move it forward. 
Was the uh, John was the uh, UAS safety team involved in developing the uh, recently uh, launched trust program from uh, the FAA or no? I don't believe so. Um, yeah, I think that's that's been in the works for for a while. Uh, Greg probably knows more about the inner workings of that than than anyone. Um, but uh, I, I don't know for sure what what role they played. I think Kevin actually was the Kevin Morris was kind of the the brainchild of Trust. I know he's been working on that for two and a half years. He's told me the other day. So yeah, it's been a long oh, time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I take it back a little bit. Um, what motivated you to start Kitty Hawk with Josh Zeering? Uh, Josh is a friend of mine, so I'm just curious to know that backstory a little bit. Yeah, we were uh, really before we became you know business partners. We were friends and. You know, typical kind of uh, Bay Area. We would we kind of had a, a group of friends. We we'd have hack nights. We get together and, and work on stuff. And um, uh, he's similar to me, self taught developer. I work on iOS and mobile side. He was working on kind of web and, and back end kinds of things. And he comes from the modeling perspective. He has done that for for years. Um, since he was a kid, and so he was front and center to this this drone revolution that was transpiring, and um, so he, he was really thinking: drones are, are real aircraft. What are the systems and, and tools that uh, people are going to need? As uh, as we've seen, um, new new entrance to really dealing with the airspace. You know, you see every day; it's not a natural kind of thing, um, but you know, we really saw it affecting uh, individuals, affecting companies, really transforming business. And we thought, what what are the tools and platforms that are going to be needed? So really, it, it just started where you know, he showed me kind of an early uh, version of, of Kitty Hawk. And I was like, oh, let me, let me start building a, a mobile app for this. And just slowly but surely, kind of every iteration, new feature we released, we, we got more usage, we got awesome feedback, we started to develop a, a really rampant community around what we were doing. And, uh, we are, we're also seeing pretty crazy signups. Um, I think some early ones that we saw were like Disney and Caterpillar and we're like, well, these companies are like downloading our app from the app store. They're not on our website. So it's like people at these companies are like on the app store looking for this stuff. So. After about a year of of uh, you know kind of hack nights and stuff, we we're like let's let's go full time on this, and and uh, the rest is is kind of written. Oh, nice. Um, so I love Kitty Hawk. I use it for all my Lance authorizations, and I thought it was you know the perfect brand name. And so I know this is an annoying question, but. Why why did you change it to Aloft? I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly wasn't uh, an easy decision, but yeah, I think, uh, like I mentioned, thank you for being uh, a loyal uh, user of, of our products, but um, we had this awesome, really brand awareness, brand affinity of, of what we were about. Um, and especially, I think, how we focused on uh, awesome user experiences, um, providing free applications for people to, to use, um, and and also respecting people's privacy. And you know, I think we've really taken a lot of steps uh, in our privacy policies and what we do. Where it's like, 
if you're using our products, we're not going to be selling your data. Like you own your data. And I think that's different from a lot of other um, providers and kind of their approach. And um, so, you know, with that, we were also thinking, where is our company going next? And, and I think that's where we started to think about not just our product evolution, but also our, our brand evolution as well. Mm-hmm. And I think as far as we've come, um, there's still plenty of people who are like, oh, yeah, uh, Kitty Hawk, the flight logging app. Mm-hmm. And I think we really wanted to take a moment to really um, emphasize where we have come as, as a company and as a platform where um, we've certainly come a very long way from some very early app iterations that uh, that I built. Unfortunately, that code is no longer there of simple kind of, you know, where did you fly, how long, save, to now powering over half of all Lance authorizations, for example. So it, it was really a difficult decision, but really a forward-looking way to think how can we separate from the past um, and, and really focus on how we can help the industry going forward, which uh, really went back to, to our mission. Um, yes, we started with flight logging, but really what we're about is how do we integrate uh, aviators and aircraft into the airspace safely, compliantly at scale. And you know, we really wanted a, a name that kind of focused on, on that um, focus that, that we have and, and uh, want to really emphasize. So, uh, I still, I still have my Kitty Hawk shirt <laughs> and stuff like that, so it, it's a good throwback. But uh, um, it'll be a collector item, hopefully. So, so thank you for the <laughs> loyal usage over the years. Yeah, of course. Was there was there any uh, potential confusion with uh, Kitty Hawk Arrow, the uh, the air taxi service? Is is that part of the the decision making as well? Do you have two companies operating more or less in the same space? With similar names, yeah, I mean, there, there was certainly a lot of a lot of confusion um, with uh, other hawks in general. You know, it, there's mm-hmm. a lot of hawks out there. Um, I think there's even ones that are not uh, super well known, but um, on the data side, so um, you know, there was a lot of confusion so that was that was part of you know just the thinking but it wasn't uh necessarily the driving factor but definitely a bonus to be like oh okay um when uh some other hawk is in the news my my mom or her friends don't get it confused with with what's going on oh look look at what's going on (laughs) <laughs> what's uh what's been the most challenging you think about changing the name we were talking about this in the office from a from from, from a marketing standpoint i'm sure your marketing people at first had some uh, choice word when you told them you were going to change the name i uh, i don't know i think i think they were super excited about it it's uh not every uh not very often get a chance to go through that kind of exercise so i i think from a marketing perspective you know, people were super excited to be like, this is awesome. We get to tell a, a big story. Um, we get to, um, you know, really do things at, at a different level that than just kind of rolling along with, with the status quo. Um, so I think that was, that was exciting. Probably the, the challenge that uh, we were thinking about was um, how do we really get the awareness out there, um, and particularly, um, 
in this kind of COVID environment, like initially we were kind of thinking maybe we do this around this time last year at some big conference, some big event. And then it's like, all right, we're not having any of those anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're like, all right, let's, let's table this, you know, think about it um, next year. So I think some of those intricacies were, were difficult. Um, and then you know, some of the nitty gritty of just changing domains and uh, all of your passwords and things that are set up. So there, there's plenty of that that was probably less fun, but from a storytelling and, hey, let's uh, get our name out there in a much bigger way. I think the whole whole team was super excited about that. Well, thanks for the extra work because we had to go back and change all of the names in our system because we have <laughs> we have a ton of uh, of tutorials in our courses on how to use Kitty Hawk. So we, we spend a couple of hours. So thanks. All right, I, I, I wasn't on our radar of like, oh, what, what's uh, what's Greg's punch list? Yeah. Make sure you call next time. Exactly. Uh, gives you a heads up next time. Yeah. Hey John, um, I wanted to talk about the the lens outage uh, last week. Uh, I think it was three days. There was no lens access, uh, causing all kinds of problems. I guess for for people flying drones. Uh, for you as a service provider, I guess it must have been quite terrifying. Can you can you tell us more about what exactly happened, and more importantly, I guess how we can make sure that stuff like this doesn't happen in the future? Yeah, it was it was rough. Um, we. So we, I guess the quick timeline is we, we saw this Sunday morning and uh, we alerted the, the FAA about this. And then uh, I think a short while later, they kind of sent an email back to all the providers kind of confirming that there was this outage. So, you know, part of um, seeing so much Lance activity and, and powering most of, of Lance, you know, we kind of saw the early warning signs. So I, I don't, um, I think they had seen this or were monitoring that closely, you know, on a, on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned earlier, that's when a lot of people are, are going out to, to fly, especially recreationally. So yeah. once, uh, once it um, went down, um, you know, we were really just in, in support mode, first and foremost, of how do we let people know what, what is going on? And I think part of the, one of the main learnings that we saw was, um, you know, as this wasn't an expected outage from from the land system, there weren't any kind of nice errors or way to show what was going on to the user. Um, it wasn't uh, parsable language, essentially. That was like, oh, here's here's what uh, is going on. So there's a lot of proactive kind of outreach for for people who I think were very frustratingly tapping submit over and over again and wondering when it was going to come back up. And uh, we tried to, um, I think, just let people know and, and keep people updated um, while having a channel going on with FA to see what was going on. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, they really didn't have, um, and I understand this is always hard to like provide a, hey, when do you think you're going to be back up? But um, yeah. You know, we kept pinging them, seeing what the updates were, and they're like, you know, our contractor's working on this, uh, trying to figure it out. Um, but you know, I think pretty troubling that uh, this unexpected error took three days to yeah. to get sorted out. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can imagine a lot of people uh, must have been pretty frustrated about that. And I, I think a lot of people also are wondering, like, so what was wrong and how do we make sure that this does not happen again in the future? But uh, maybe that's not a, a question that's, uh, that's easily answered at this point in time. Yeah, so, um, and this was talked about at the, the last DAC meeting, there was a question about it. But, um, you know, for sure it was a terrible user experience and especially while we're um, in the process of really trying to increase compliance and safety, uh, you know, I think as much as Lance is growing, as much as we're growing as, as the leading provider, there's still far more flights in controlled airspace than there are Lance's. I think that's fairly common knowledge. So having an outage like this without kind of good outreach, I think is, is uh, really does a disservice to all of the momentum that we're trying to build from a safety and an integration perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, I think looking at that outage that, that they talked about, and, and I don't have any more information than what they talked about at the DAC right now, but essentially it seemed like there was uh, some sort of maintenance thing that was supposed to happen and it was misconfigured. Um, so we'll see what kind of details we can learn from that. But uh, I think the main takeaway from our perspective is this is uh, critical utility for recreational and commercial usage. And uh, there's really no, no excuse for that to be down for yeah. multiple days. Like if you're running that system and this happens, you know, couple of hours, scramble, figure it out. Uh, multiple days, you know, I think even had, you know, different uh, sort of conspiracy theories that we were seeing in, in our heavily overloaded support system where people were like, is this ransomware? And I was like, I don't, I don't know if you're going to get that much money that you might get a pipeline. But that's the kind of questions people were thinking when oh, yeah. a yeah. system like that is down for so long. The other thing that, uh, you know, we were – kind of talking about and I think is evident is that, um, you know, I saw a few comments about, uh, oh, this is a good example about networked remote ID and UTM and, you know, all of the potential failings of this. And I think that's a pretty simple kind of conclusion for one to, to get to. Um, we really need advanced technologies like this for, um, for what we're trying to do. For me, I think it emphasizes we need, technology companies that know how to do this to be the ones providing these solutions. Um, FAA is excellent at, I think, airports, traditional aviation. Um, they're trying to wrap their hands around this next wave of aviation that has tremendous scale that I don't think traditional aviation is, is used to. And it's much more technology forward. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, your cloud provider goes down, you don't think like, oh, I guess I should go back to having a hard drive on my desk. You're like, no, I need a better cloud provider. So I wouldn't think about this in terms of, oh, we can't use this awesome technology. It's like, no, we just need to use it in the right way with trusted, um, verified providers where if this is gonna be required and you wanna emphasize safety and compliance in the airspace, let's, uh, Let's use providers and technology and uh, put the proper investment into making this a uh, robust system. Cool. 
Yeah. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. Um, going to remote ID, uh, what type of impact will remote ID have on Aloft? Or Aloft? I don't think, you know, too much for the foreseeable future. You know, it's still a couple of years. Um, I think there's a lot of questions that, uh, and I'd say we're getting a while ago, it's kind of trailed off, but just like, Hey, what am I, what do I need to do? Um, and it's like nothing, you know, ASTM is working on its standard. Um, this is a 2023 sort of thing. Um, you know, the main thing that I'd say we're focused on from a, remote ID perspective that is less about the means of compliance, but more so how do we affect airspace safety? And, and I think that's really where um, Aloft is more focused, where we have to have compliance covered, like let's check that box. Um, that's really fairly simple in terms of what's going to be required, whether it's uh, firmware updates, modules, you name it. Um, but and I've written about this uh, quite a bit as of others, but broadcast doesn't affect airspace safety. It, it, it doesn't uh, enable multi-way communications. Um, it's really uh, first and foremost, a very simple way that law enforcement could in theory um, act on potential drones. So cool. We, we've kind of gotten that step. And I think one of the, uh, I think really positive signs that we've seen from the FA perspective. And, you know, we saw this with the FA's administrator uh, Dixon speech just a couple weeks ago, focusing on the critical role of UTM and what that's going to mean. And we really can't have millions of drone flights compared to tens of thousands of traditional aviation flights without a network system where my drone can talk to your drone my drone can send a different message to law enforcement. Um, those are the kind of systems we need. So I think from really from a loss perspective, we're really focused on what are the means and ways that we can affect airspace safety. And yeah, I think the, you know, probably the best way that we could highlight that uh, of just stuff we've done to date is um, towards the end of last year, uh, and you did this in Before You Fly, where you could, you could um, essentially crowdsource different information. And one of the main things that we saw people submitting was their intent to fly. So this wasn't some mandated thing. Um, this was just people wanting to announce where and when they wanted to operate. Um, that actually fits very nicely with really what our suggestion was in terms of remote ID, which was let's think about volumes, a lance everywhere kind of concept. Um, one of the DAC working groups, and this was uh, presented last week, was uh, thinking about notify and fly. How can you share where you're going to be flying with other operators where they can see that uh, in advance, in real time? So those are the kinds of capabilities that we're going to be building into to Loft and Before You Fly, where um, come well before 2023 and actually do help fellow operators, recreational enterprise or beyond understand what's around them when uh, when the faa first introduced the uh, remote id the mprm uh, a lot of people were very much opposed against or opposed to having your drones being connected to a network in real time um, i think your company uh, was one of the the 
parties have posted that as well. Do you see any specific use case where drones should be connected to a network in real time uh, in relationship to remote ID? So again, I would kind of separate remote ID from a means of compliance versus what's an enabling technology to affect airspace safety and integration. Um, in terms of the means of compliance and really where the NPRM started, I, I think it could have been a much simpler approach if you said uh, networked or broadcast, not network and broadcast. I think that yeah. really kind of set things off on a wrong foot. And yeah. uh, you know, we, we had mentioned this, how, uh, you know, and we weren't in the cohort, so I don't know what went on there, but pretty quickly that whole conversation devolved mm -hmm. into, all right, Let's just solve a law enforcement need and and kind of leave the door open to revisit this and kind of evolve it as we go. So um, I think one of the things that is clear is um, how do we affect compliance and safety? And uh, for a lot of people, broadcast is great, right? Um, cool. Mm -hmm. uh, let me just update my DJI firmware theoretically, and I have a compliant drone. Lovely. You know, that, that's great for a lot of people. Um, you know, I think aside from really that, that chunk of, let's call it just the DJI quadcopter group, um, once you get kind of to either side of that, you have a lot of unhappy people that wanted more choice. Um, on the modeling and recreational and FPV side, they wanted a networked approach because they're like, I don't want to put a module on my on my FPV drone that I'm flying at, at 20 feet, um, let me do a Lance Everywhere kind of kind of system where I could say, hey, I'm gonna be flying my, my model here. Um, so FPV groups, you know, modelers, that would have been a big win. Um, and it wasn't like you needed uh, an internet connected FPV. You could have just much like we do with Lance. Um, and that was really our, our main suggestion. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have companies that are like being able to or required to broadcast information is something that I would rather put to a trusted USS provider because I don't want my drone spouting out location information and pilot information. Mm -hmm. um, if that works for you and you want to do that, cool. Um, but otherwise, let me send that privately to somewhere that, mm -hmm. that I know can be trusted. So. Uh, I think that lack of choice was, was the, the hardest part, um, both in the proposed rule and then the final rule, because um, aside from that um, kind of big group in the middle, you're losing a lot of capabilities. And I think the main thing that that is missing again is, let's say I do receive a broadcast signal uh, and there's no way to send back any sort of information. That's that's the next wave of technologies that we really need to think about is multi-way communications. Um, the other thing that, uh, and I think it was discussed in the in the final rule um, as well was, um, and we had seen this in some of our, our surveys that that we did with uh, our different user bases to kind of inform the comments that we wanted to make was um, over and over again, uh, people uh, as well as companies say, I will share more information to law enforcement that I don't want going to the general public. Yeah. And you don't have that capability in a broadcast system that you do in a network system where you could say, hey, um, 
I'm going to use Aloft as my USS for, for Lance and Remote ID. And uh, here's information that I might be willing to share with the public. And we've seen that for years on our applications where, um, and I forget when exactly, I'll say three or four years ago, we created the ability to share anonymous telemetry. And people do that, right? Um, you can yeah. go in Aloft today and see where people are flying sharing anonymous telemetry because it's useful for safety. Um, yeah. But they don't want to share their name and other information, but they would with law enforcement. So I think those kinds of capabilities where how do you have multi-way, multi-channel communication where different messages are going to aircraft, operators, uh, other UTM partners, law enforcement regulators, like that's the potential is you can have a much more robust, um, useful system if you can send ones and zeros to another drone and say, hey, there's another drone nearby, uh, and send a more anonymous, uh, useful safety message to other operators. You can send a more detailed message to, to law enforcement. So I think uh, that's not in, in this kind of current simplified means of compliance, but that's where the industry wants to go. And I think that's where... Um, a lot of uh, users of, of the airspace, both kind of thinking about advanced use cases like delivery and advanced air mobility, as well as modelers and FPV users want to get to. So that's, I think, where we're focused on building a lot of our tech is, is let's show that we can impact safety by, by doing that. More options and, uh, and more advanced, basically. Well, you, you just mentioned a, a keyword that for my next question, and, you know, we've been talking about UTM, you know, UAS traffic management, for those of you that are listening that don't know what that means. Um, urban air mobility, advanced air mobility, those are big words that we've been hearing a lot in the last six months to a year. Uh, they add a level of complexity to the airspace that is already pretty complex with UTM. How do they fit into the equation with Aloft? And what challenges do you think that they're going to create from a UTM standpoint? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's still you know, a little ways off, but you know, we're getting closer and closer um, every day. I think you know, from, from our perspective, and really our, our mission is how do we integrate millions of aircraft, millions of flights per day into the airspace. And um, that's really the, the platform that, that we've built and, and are um, thinking about where um, we've had this really useful, but um, really kind of simple means of, of flight to date where it's one person with their thumbs doing flights for fun, very valuable inspections, security kinds of flights. Um, how do we get to more more autonomy, more scale, where um, we're able to um, do be online a site, and and I think it kind of scales up from there in terms of um, a simple be online a site flight, which could be my drones under a bridge and I can't see it, or it's on the other side of of a tank or a building and I can't see it, but it's fairly close to me. Um, all the way to I'm flying across town to drop off a package or I'm flying a few miles away um, to inspect a power line. Like that's, you know, where we start to get to, I think, um, you know, in terms of the air taxi and advanced air mobility side, like that's going to be 
a big user of of the airspace as well. And um, yeah, I think they're going to need much of the same kind of safety tools in terms of what's the airspace, what's the activity around me, how do I integrate with other drones as well as other traditional aircraft. So I think what we're doing and, and really how we're setting the stage for um, today with smaller drones doing advanced types of flights will carry us forward into what bigger drones carrying people will do. Um, uh, you know, I think you guys probably saw the the BB Loss Arc that was just announced and, and getting underway. Um, you know, that's really starting to set the stage for how how do um, the online site flights become much more commonplace, uh, much the way we've seen flights at night. You used to need a waiver, now they don't. Um, how do we get there with with BB Loss and really continue on from there? There's, there's this great document out there from NASA, which is the, the UTM concept of Operation 2.0, ConOps 2.0. And for those of you that are interested, that are listening, if you're interested in more information on UTM, I read the document uh, a while back and, and that cleared up so much in my head as to where UTM is going. And you you know, you mentioned BV loss is the next thing. Well, that's kind of the next thing on the list. If you look at what the FAA has been, or, or NASA, the concept came from NASA, how they've been working on it, that's kind of step-by-step, step, you know, and we're pretty much like step three or four right now. Now, follow up on the UTM question. Um, in that document, in the concept 2.0, there is a mention that manned aircraft that are operating below 400 feet, which is the UTM world, um, eventually will have to kind of uh, play along with the other users of the airspace because at the moment below 400 feet um, is really uh, it's it's not a UAS only world we we see helicopters we see airplanes that are operating in there in uncontrolled airspace that is so um, do you foresee a time when manned aircraft will have to request permission to enter that airspace below 400 feet or at least share their information with other users when it becomes more complex. Yeah, no, I, I like where you're going with that. And one of the things that you know we try and uh, be very vocal about um, when we do reports to the FA, when we write industry pieces, is really recognizing that drones are already the biggest users of the airspace today. And uh, sure, they're they're tiny compared to you know big jumbo jets, but um, you know it's it's going to take a mind shift and a cultural shift to recognize that the millions of pilots and the millions of drones that we have are the biggest users of the airspace, and we're using all of the airspace. We're we're not just taking off from point A to point B. We're taking off all over the country, uh, all over the world, and we're using airspace that you know is pretty much untapped. Um, yeah. So how do we really recognize the fact that this is the biggest user base? And at some point, um, you know, we kind of need to say, all right, as you mentioned, if you're coming into that airspace, you're defaulting to it. You're, you're recognizing that, yeah, there's, I mean, I'm not where I'm usually supposed to be, you know, aside from, you know, where a traditional aircraft might come into land. Um, I think helicopter is another good example where they're they're a big focus. They're probably the ones that fly closest to where drones operate, and there's a few thousand. So, you know, they provide great uh, 
importance to society, emergency kinds of things, but um, there's a couple thousand of them. Are we going to build rules and systems that uh, enable a few thousand aircraft to fly or that enable a few million aircraft to fly? And yeah, I think that's really where we're trying to be a big proponent for all of these use cases from recreational to air taxi where this is the future. How do we build the infrastructure and really give the kind of attention that is demanding of the biggest user base that you have? Aloft has partnered with AirMap in the past, and yet we know that AirMap is disliked by independent drone service providers for attempting to have airspace taxed and proposing um, takeoff and landing fees for drone operators. Um, I've covered this several times in some of my articles. Um, do you have any thoughts on this that you can share publicly? Um, yeah, we, so, yeah, we were an early user of AirMap from a developer standpoint. And um, yeah, they had some, the, the main people we worked with are, are no longer there, but, uh, Awesome team, loved what they were doing, and I was like, oh, let's, let's do more together. Um, and then, you know, it kind of got to a, a certain point where, um, you know, as our platform and user base was growing, um, you know, we just had a much better insight. I think really our priority started to diverge into, you know, what, what's the end goal here? As you said, you know, some of the public things that, that they've said, tweets that have been deleted, you know, certainly don't align with anything that, that we're about. Um, but it was really more so from a technology standpoint that we said, this is critical to, to our users in terms of how do you understand and access the airspace? And we said, let's, uh, we have really unique understanding of that from the recreational side, from the commercial side, um, we see potential to innovate and really do more than what we're able to do by just, you know, using their, their SDK at the time. So that's when, uh, and I think going back to 2018 when we said, let's, let's do this ourselves. And that's when we um, built and patented our dynamic airspace platform, became a, a Lance provider, um, started working with the FAA for before you fly. So I think that's really when we said, let's, you know, unplug from, what they're doing and and instead of feeding data to them that we didn't uh see good value in saying this is something that we need to own and kind of going back to what i said in the beginning how do we do this from a security and privacy standpoint first and foremost where um yes flying in the public airspace is a public act but doesn't mean that your data should be should be shared it doesn't mean that your flight should be taxed like we wanted to lead on innovation and think more value is going to come from more flights happening than from, you know, putting things that constrict the size and activity of, of the airspace. So um, I really, you know, since then, and, you know, since a lot of their, their team changes, you know, we don't have a lot of contact or, or insight into to what they're doing. And um, you know, it's, that's fine. We're, we're on a mission. So, uh, John, currently uh, Aloft provides a basic land service for free. How important is it for you that that remains free for uh, non-enterprise customers in a basic version? Is that a critical part of your marketing strategy? Yeah, and I think really just uh, part of our 
focus on safety and compliance and uh, kind, of, kind of going back to how do network solutions provide more safety? Um, mm-hmm. Let's get more people using using these tools. And I think the free versions of this and, and uh, you know, even things that are done to uh, bring more advanced features to to the free side are, are pretty important as well. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of our, our culture and something that we really want to support. Where um, you know the biggest I think focus for us is how do we get more people using the system, and yeah. you know we're still uh, you know a long way away from having every flight in controlled airspace be uh, a Lance approved flight. So how do we move towards that? So I want to bring up a topic that you and I have discussed in the past, which is local uh, flight restrictions or land access restrictions in a way, because this is something that's extremely difficult to find as, as, a, as a user. I know a lot of people that are listening probably feel that you go somewhere, you, you pop up aloft and you look and oh, I'm clear to fly, right? Well, not necessarily because there may be a land restriction somewhere. Um, I want to rope this into kind of a double question. We, we've seen kind of an assault on the low altitude, um, uh, the, the first 200 feet of airspace from the lawmakers recently with the Mike Lee regulation that they were trying to put in place. Um, how does this affect what you guys do if we have regulation and, and local entities that can control the first 200 feet of airspace? And also, how do we get all of these restrictions to the end user? I know this is something that you guys have been working on, but it's a it's a major struggle, I'm sure, to find all that data. Yeah, it's... It's kind of two things coming at this at once where, um, you know, it's, as you pointed out, it's really not ideal if we have a lot of local regulations that become very hard to comply with and make things more complex. Um, but uh, I think, you know, in an absence where there's some clear movement and things at the federal level, that's going to happen. Um, so I think... Ideally, and, and you know, in, in a perfect world, there's one set of rules to comply with that enable flight to happen and are easy to understand. But in the meantime, we recognize there's local rules all over the place. And even ignoring you know, more uh, kind of things on the legislative side that are about taxes or registration, um, you still have just how do you fly compliantly mm-hmm. and you need to understand the airspace that your drone is going to be in, but you also need to understand where you're operating from and local parks um, all over the place. um, Different cities have these local rules that are really hard to find. And I know from firsthand experience, um, it's happened to me in a park in San Francisco. uh, The park ranger shows up, says, Hey, you can't fly a drone here. And I'm like, pretty sure my drone can be here, but it's like, Oh, there's local rules for where my feet are. Um, and you know, really the way that we've tried to help with this is, uh, as I mentioned, we, we did a crowdsourcing campaign in Before You Fly where you can submit data and you can um, you know, start to collect this because um, park rangers and you know, people that we've talked to, they understand that there's no visibility into this at all. And um, you know, even the, the San Francisco park ranger that... Uh, I was talking to, uh, he was like, don't worry, this rule exists. No one knows where to find it. Um, you know, you can imagine how well placed that is on 
on a government website, right? So that's been first and foremost saying, hey, let, let's get more of this data in and actually give these cities a place to upload their data so that it can become useful and help people understand uh, where to operate. Uh, and that's been super successful. We're adding in more and more data sources from, from parks, um, forestry, um, all sorts of things. So you can go submit that and, and we're going to be building onto that so that uh, from an awareness standpoint, you're able to operate more, more compliantly. But, you know, the other stuff that we've been doing um, is really trying to help these different states understand, you know, what are your objectives? And, um, you know, I think Minnesota and I think North Carolina have like specific registration requirements that, that you need to do. Um, I know um, Travelers Insurance, you know, they're, they're a customer and uh, an investor, but they need to deal with 50 different states and a bunch of different cities for where they're operating. They're like, oh, do we need to pay tax in, in Minnesota because we flew drones there this many days out of the year? Um, and I, I think what these states have started to figure out is the money that they put into building and kind of enforcing that is not going to result in anything close to any money that they collect from that. So what, what are you really trying to do? If you're trying to find a new source of revenue, probably not a great idea. So are you trying to, and I think this is where more kind of forward leaning states are trying to go is how do we embrace this technology? And we see this with different states with autonomous cars, right? Um, what are the, the cities and states that want to attract this technology, attract this investment, attract these companies to operate? And, and I think, you know, in this uh, you know, semi post COVID world, cities and states are recognizing we can compete for where people want to live. And a lot of people want to live where you're advancing technology that's resulting in less traffic, cleaner skies, um, more efficient kinds of services. So um, yeah, I think between how, how we can kind of help inform some of the states of what they're trying to do. And then also how do we help just operators in the meantime so that they don't get tapped on the shoulder by park rangers or local enforcement is is uh, really the, our two-pronged approach to to help uh, now and in the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough task. That's a really tough task. Well, John, uh, we, we really appreciate your time. I, I know we're closing in on the hour here and, and uh, using your valuable time. I have one last question that we always ask our, our guest, which is, what's your favorite drone to fly? <laughs> My favorite drone to fly? Um, I would say, I don't know, I would say it's changing. And uh, I would say, you know, the other unfortunate part, as I recently moved to the D.C. area, is I don't, uh, <laughs> don't get to fly too much anymore, uh, living in uh, a bright, bright red area. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, this is kind of where the product side of me always kind of goes is, all right, what's, uh, what's fun to fly, but what has kind of interesting UI perspectives, interesting con control elements? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say the two that kind of come to mind are um, the, uh, I remember the Mavic Air being one of my favorites just because like you put that in sport mode and it was like zooming all over the place, super fun. Um, and then the other one that I thought was really interesting um, was the, the Paradinafi 
in that I really like some of the controls that you could do in terms of settings to where uh, you could really dial in what different stick movements made and get really precise into different kinds of flights that you were trying to do. So uh, yeah, those two come to mind, super compact, portable, you know, fold them up and uh, take them anywhere. Well, John, thanks for your time. Uh, we will be uh, posting this uh, tomorrow morning, and this is uh, Monday today for us, and we'll be releasing this on Tuesday. Uh, for those of you that are listening, please uh, like, subscribe, leave a comment for John if you have any questions on what they're doing at Loft. Uh, make sure that you find their app. It's on the App Store for Apple and for uh, the uh, for Android as well. And um, I think that's it. That's all we have. John, thanks again. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, please reach out anytime if I can be of, of help or, or service to you guys and big fan of what you all do. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Absolutely.